0: Let's get started. We have a double header this morning, so let's jump in. Okay. Oh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord God, it seems forever since we last gathered in your house. It is good to be back again. We pray for your blessing upon our, our instruction and in learning, upon our worship, upon our fellowship today. and We commit our time to you. ask that you would be, come and be present with us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be talking about two people today. Um, we're going to start with a man, a young man named Albert Coburg. Albert was born on the 26th of August in 1819, and he was born in Coburg, Germany. As you might guess, he was, uh, he was, a no, he was born into a noble family in Germany. He was the son of Ernest, the Duke of saxe Sachs, uh, coburg saffeld and his first wife, Louise. One of uh, Albert's ancestors was, one of, he had a very famous ancestor named Frederick the Wise, the Elector of Saxony. Does that name ring a bell for anyone? Yes, yes. Who was he? He saved, Luther. he saved Luther. He was one of the early—he was one of the early noblemen who protected Martin Luther. And at the beginning of the German Reformation, he was—in uh, particular, he was the man who had Luther kidnapped on the return from Diet of Worms and then put him up in Wartburg Castle. So this would have been. So he was, and he was a strong supporter of the German Reformation to the end of his life. So this was one of Albert, so that would, he would be a great subject for a future lesson, but he's not who we're talking about today. Albert's parents uh, were both wildly immoral and dissolute, and they ultimately divorced. By about after, after about age eight, uh, Albert's mother was no longer a part of his life. She, um, she divorced his father, married her lover, and never saw her son, sons again. Albert's father Ernest went on to marry his younger niece and both father and stepmother had little to do with their sons. Albert grew up with his uh, older brother, his older brother was also named Ernest. This uh, hunger for a father defined Albert's young life. He struggled, he, he desired his father's uh, approval, his atten- even just he would have settled for his attention for a long time. But he never got it. His father was too busy with hunting, with throwing parties, with court intrigues uh, and to have anything to do with his son. But he found surrogate fathers in, uh, in relations, particularly King Leopold of Belgium, the tiny nation of Belgium, and his advisor, Baron Christian Stockmar. Uh, these men took the young Albert under their wing and began to mold, mold and shape his future because they had a purpose in mind. They guided his... Uh, they guided his they got his early education very, very closely. Albert studied art, he studied music, science, technology. Uh, it, his, young edu- his education was, was broad, it was diverse, it was extremely practical. Uh, it contrasted with the education of many in the English nobility at the time, who would have been focused on literature, the classics, and politics, almost exclusively. Uh, that, it, was not unlike the, uh, it was not unlike the southern landowners uh, here, here in America at the time. Who viewed, that, who viewed anything smelling of trade or industry as beneath them. It was very true in England as well. But Albert liked to, Albert had a voracious appetite for knowledge and absorbed a lot. Albert was, Albert was struck and, as he grew older, he continued to grieve more over the broken family uh, that had produced him. His, his teachers, um, uh, his mentors, looked, uh, looked to his character very, very closely. They, um, in particular, they helped him to develop sexual purity, which was very, very rare in European, in any European nobility at the time. Well, indeed, any time. Um, but they had a very, they had, they were trying to guide Albert for a purpose, and they had, and they had a wife of very high character in mind for him, and they wanted him to be prepared. They also saw a future for Europe, and saw this couple, um, beginning with Albert, at the heart of it. Um, this was particularly true for Baron Stockmar. He's a remarkable man that we could talk a lot about himself. He was one of the preeminent diplomats of Europe. He was something of a kingmaker. Even though he was served in the tiny kingdom of Belgium, he was right at the heart of European politics. And it was he who, fought, he, once, um, once Albert's grounding in a broad range of subjects had been developed, it was he who oversaw his political education in particular. Because he was being prepared, um, because they had an eye on the greatest nation of Europe at the time. They had an eye for Albert to ascend to the throne of England uh, in in due time. In order to do that, though, Albert was nowhere near in succession, but his cousin, Victoria, was. Princess Alexandra Victoria of Kent was born on the 24th of May, 1819, so same year as, as her cousin Albert Coburg. She was born in Kensington Palace in London. She was named after her mother, also named Victoria, but we're going uh, to call her the Duchess from now on just to avoid confusion. The Duchess of Kent, they were, both, uh, they were also of the house of saxe coburg Um And Victoria never even knew her father, who died when she was very, very young. The Duchess, let's just say the Duchess also had plans for her daughter, and it was not for her daughter to succeed, it was for her daughter to be under her thumb. Um, she was heavily. The Duchess was extremely influenced by a nobleman named Sir John Conroy. And between the two of them, they wanted England for themselves. Um, their daughter, uh, the Duchess's daughter, um, preceded her in the line of ascent, accession to the throne. Um, so she determined that she would, ter- she would she determined that she would pull out Victoria's spine and make her pliable and compliant for the rest of her life. Uh, Victoria was required to sleep in her mother's room all the way up until the moment she became queen, in fact. Uh, she kept a, uh, Victoria kept a diary faithfully her entire life, and the Duchess read it every single day, monitoring every aspect of her life. Um, together with Sir John, the Duchess strove to manipulate, make Victoria completely dependent on the two of them. They went so far as, um, Victoria was extremely sick uh, in her early teens, and, to, and they used this opportunity to, try to pressure her to appoint John. Conroy as her se- private secretary, to declare uh, her mother to be her regent uh, until, until well into her majority, and, um, and through all of it, Princess Victoria didn't, didn't budge an inch. Uh, they, historians have come to call this oppressive upbringing the Kensington system, in reference to uh, their home, and it completely failed. Instead of becoming timid and subservient, Victoria emerged resilient, resourceful, and determined. They, um, her, the plan backfired, and they, it ended up producing one of the first capable monarchs that the British Empire had seen in a while. Um, Victoria's predecessor was William IV. Uh, William IV was one of the, son, was the third son, I believe, of George III of American Revolution fame and of the House of Hanover. And he, uh, much like Albert's father, was more interested in court intrigue and sleeping around and, hunting, and eating too much. Uh, the, the Hanoverian appetite at the table was notorious. Even Victoria herself had to struggle with it later. It, wasn't, it God's hand is evident already in this, though. It was very unusual. As, bad, as rough as life with the Duchess was, it was very unusual for Victoria to have it at all. Ordinarily, she would have been uh, declared a ward of the king uh, as, a, you know, as an heir presumptive and would have been under his care and would have been growing up in the dissolute court life of William IV. Instead, she was very much isolated with her mother and Sir John Conroy, which was very hard for Victoria, but turned out to be very important for the world history. She managed to avoid that, and one of the few benef- and she got two benefits out of the, well, she got multiple benefits after the difficult upbringing with her mother. She learned strength of character. Uh, she, was, uh, she was pure, just like her future husband Albert would be. And um, and then from Sir John, Sir John, who was particularly manipulative, she learned she learned to have a unique regard for the British people, which we're going to touch on again here in a minute. Her true mother was her governess uh, Baroness Louise Leitschen. She had Victoria had a fierce temper, another hallmark of the Hanovers, and um, she gave she helped uh, helped Victoria to curb that and to learned self-control, and also oversaw her education, which was, uh, which was very diverse, much like Albert's. Victoria would go on to speak three languages by the time she completed her education, English, French, and German, which would have been the most important languages of diplomacy at the time. It wasn't until um, 18th, so Elizabeth, or Victoria was born in 1819. Uh, it wasn't until 1830 that she first learned she would be queen. And she learned it uh, because it was finally decided that she should know. It was not something that her mother or Sir John wanted her to know for a long time because they didn't want her, they worried they might lose control. However, two months before eleven 11th birthday, at the end of her usual lesson in English history, Princess Victoria reopened her book to find inserted in it a newly updated genealogy of the English royal family. It showed that only her dying uncle, George IV, and her uncle William, Duke of Clarence, stood between her and the throne. The conversation went as follows. Victoria, I never saw that before. Leighton, it was not thought necessary that you should, princess. Victoria, I see I'm nearer to the throne than I thought. Leighton, so it is, madam. Victoria, after some moments, you can almost see this young 11-year-old girl just staring intently into her history book, and she says, now many a child would boast, but they don't know the difficulty. There is much splendor, but there is more responsibility. And then at that point, she held up the forefinger of her right hand, and then putting her hand laced she said i will be good it was nearly prophetic on yeah. so 7 years after that after that after learning she would be queen she became queen and she ascended the british throne on the june 20th 1837 she was only 18 She was woken up early by Leighton and asked to go downstairs because the Archbishop of Canterbury and another nobleman of the court was there to see her. And upon her entering the room, they both knelt down and said, God save the queen. Uh, She received, uh, so she received the news of the ascension, and anyone want to guess what her first act was? She had her bed moved out of her mother's bedroom, (laughs) and then she kicked John Conroy out of the house for good. Never saw him again. Uh, as you might expect, her relationship with her mother was extremely strained for many years after this. Uh, but she immediately took up residence t- took up uh, residence in the royal in the well. No, she remained in Kensington for a time after, until her coronation, if I bel- if I remember correctly. Uh, but she had her own bedroom again. <laughs> <laughs> there's a uh, there's a story told that during her coronation week, uh, during the week, uh, you know, d- before during all the festivities and pageantry that went around, that went along with crowning a new British monarch in Westminster Abbey. She attended a performance of Handel's Messiah, and of course, as everyone everyone should know, it ends with the famous Hallelujah Chorus, deservedly one of the most famous pieces of music in British history. And and tradition dictated then, as now, that everyone would stand for the Hallelujah Chorus, except for uh, royal etiquette demanded that the queen would remain sitting. So the 18-year-old queen, she was trying to be good. She was trying to do her role. She sat trembling and in tears and remained in her seat until the choir came to the famous refrain. Remember it, king of kings, hallelujah, hallelujah, lord and lord of lords, hallelujah, at which point she couldn't constrain herself anymore. She stood with the rest of the audience, standing with her head bowed until the the chorus concluded. Um, Her marriage was something highly, hotly, tested and debated. Uh, she had entertained numerous European princes. Uh, most of them she found tedious and tolerable and full of themselves. Um, but she had been keeping a particular eye on her cousin, Albert. Um, interestingly enough, she, uh, she and Albert had been kind of intended for each other from the beginning. She was, she was also very close to Albert's mentors, King Leopold and Baron Stockmar. And so she knew of their machinations, if you will. Uh, her mother, interestingly, was also very in favor of Albert, thought the two of them would be good for each other. Um, it, was, it was not a popular decision in England, however. They didn't care, in spite of having a German house reigning over the kingdom at the time in Hanover, um, the British didn't like Germans much. And Albert was about as German as they came. He spoke English very, very poorly with a thick German accent, uh, something, that, something that annoyed people <laughs> to the end of his life. Uh, he, never kinda, he never really fit in. Um, it was. He, it was also unpopular with uh, with the with p- Parliament and the Prime Minister at the time. Um, but Albert, uh, but Albert was well prepared, and he was just the kind of man that she was interested in. He was tall, he was striking, he was handsome. He was. Uh, he, he hated small talk. Uh, he hated parties. He was. Um, she and he and Victoria contrasted on this because she felt that by the time eight o'clock in the evening rolled around. It, the dancing and the party was just getting good. She was very Hanoverian in that in that regard, anyway. While Albert was ready to go to bed and get ready to wake up early the next day, however, she liked. He was forthright. He was direct. He knew himself. He knew himself and what he wanted to accomplish. And ultimately, um, so she ultimately proposed to him on October fifteenth, eighteen thirty-nine. She was the queen. That's the way it had to be done. We're actually just a, a few days. We're just five days out from that right now. The two of them were married in Westminster Abbey in 1840 and were made married for 20 years until Albert's death. Leading up to their wedding, uh, Victoria struggled a lot with her conscience. As a matter of fact, she was almost physically ill, trying to wrestle with the fact, um, trying to wrestle with, well, a particular portion of Scripture, actually. Um, let me read from Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to back up to verse 15 because I think um, there's several things here that speak to Victoria and Albert's life. Ephesians 5:15 says, "Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father." And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of water with the word. He might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So there was particularly those pass- passages around verse 22 about wives and their subjection to their husbands. The, uh, the Church of England's marriage liturgy at this time would have been very similar to our own here, uh, the recommended liturgy from Evangelist BCO, and it would have included a line about that Victoria, in Victoria's vows, that she should obey, love, honor, and obey her husband um, in keeping with Ephesians 5. And yet she wrestled because she'd, a year earlier, taken a vow to obey no one but to rule over the, the British kingdom, the, the kingdom of England. And so she wrestled long and hard on how to, uh, how to fulfill these two. Where her conscience landed before that, I'm not sure, but this tension between her two, you know, what she viewed as conflicting responsibilities, would come to define her life and Albert's, particularly for, particularly for the first 10 years or so of their marriage. Um, the thing that was clear from the beginning of their marriage, though, uh, the first thing to say is that Victoria and Albert absolutely adored each other uh, throughout the marriage. And that, that, like many other things in their lives, that was very unusual. Marriages were f- purely political at the time. You were concerned about getting an heir, you were concerned about making alliances uh, throughout, strengthening your position in Europe. And that was very different for Victoria and Albert. They, um, uh, unlike, many, unlike many, anyone with any, any, uh, uh, any level of nobility at the time, they actually slept in the same bedroom every night, and they made a p- point to make sure that wherever they were, uh, they would be back together. So however busy, how many, however much paperwork Victoria had during the day, she would come to bed at night. Albert, no matter how much far he would travel, he would, he would stay up late and get himself back home so they could be together. And there were many reasons for this, but the, one of the biggest ones just being it, they were under scrutiny. They were in the spotlight all day, and this was the only time of the day they actually had for just the two of them. And they came to value that very, very much, particularly Victoria, who'd been oppressed and, and manipulated and pressured you know, all growing, all through the years growing up, she'd had to grow up very, very fast. And then, of course, as queen, that just, the manipulation, the pressure, it just continued. And so for the two of them, and so the two of them began to find a refuge in harmony, marriage bed, uh, where they could just be themselves and be, and just be together, away from other things. They also, they had nine children, um, also unusual. Victoria hated pregnancy, but she loved the things that led to pregnancy. She and Albert both. We'll just put it that way. And which, you know, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> so they had a lot of sex. Uh, and they enjoyed it. And again, it's a, it sounds so mundane. It's, you know, it sounds laughable. To we, la- we laugh now, uh, but British monarchs didn't typically love sleeping with their own spouses. And the two, the two of them did. And again, found a relief and a joy in each other. Um, they loved, Victoria and Albert both loved children. Uh, it was just really hard having them. However, all nine of their children survived into adulthood. Another unusual thing for the time. Even for, even for royalty. It was a rest and a relief for both of them. Because remember, they both came from extremely broken families. Both of the, um, you know, a, a Victoria had practically... She had no father and practically, practically no mother. Uh, Albert had neither. Um, both of them, you know, both, uh, both of them were, uh, both of them found a lot of joy in building a family together. However, uh, outside the bedroom, things were very, very difficult because remember that tension again of, you know, what you know, Victoria's respo- vow to rule and for te- Victoria's vow to be ruled by her husband at the same time. Very early on. Like I said, Albert was not initially, not initially popular. He was, you know, he, he was viewed as coarse and uncouth and, you know, he was not British, so, you know, he had no, and, and what's worse, he was a German. And he didn't understand British customs, he didn't, underst- he didn't like to make small talk, he didn't know how to ingratiate himself at parties. Uh, he wanted to work, and, he, and that was the one thing that he was not able to do. Uh, he was not, so unlike, so it was a hotly debated point, but by the time that uh, Victoria came around, it was decided that we would that uh, consorts to the British Queen would not automatically become kings. Um, they'd had some they had some problems with that in the past. We'll just we'll leave it at that. As a matter of fact, I think Renton will probably touch on some of that debate with uh, with t- talking about Mary Tudor. Um, but so he was he was prince he was made he was elevated to a prince and uh, given the title of the nobility. But that that was it. And as far as the British government was concerned, he had no responsibility whatsoever. Not even the running of the household, that brand-new Buckingham Palace was under his purview. Um, Victoria's old governess, Leighton, was actually responsible for the household. And while she was, while she was very gifted in education of the future monarch and being a surrogate mother, she was terrible at running at a home, let alone a big royal estate. Um, the house was, the house was the, the, everything from the plumbing, to ventilation, to heating and, to, you know, heating air at the time it was extremely antiquated. Uh, security was poor. Uh, the house was basically just kind of, the house was new, but it was, um, but it needed a lot of attention. Um, she would also, uh, she was also very, very jealous of her position. And there was a, and she, she like many others in the British government at the time, were very suspicious of this German dude, wandering around, you know, meddling in affairs that were no concern of his. So everyone just kind of wanted him to, he, keep to his place, and there wasn't much he could do. Uh, one of the things that Albert had been taught, one of Albert's greatest virtues, however, was patience, and he learned to bide his time. And he very, he very, very um, he very, very patiently worked to remove the influences on his wife's circle. Victoria was very, very involved in the politics of the day, particularly, on, particularly with the Whigs, uh, with the Whig party. Uh, the Whigs and the Tories were the two main political parties at the time. Uh, Victoria was very close to the Whig Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne. And one of the things that Albert taught her is, "No, we are, uh, we are the king. You are the queen. You should be above. You should be the, above the politics of your nation." Um, Albert didn't practice this perfectly himself. Later on, we'll get to that later. Um, he, so he very slowly and patiently began to. Um, he very slowly began to remove uh, outside influences on Victoria. And he began to, uh, and as and as the trust between he and his wife began to grow, then uh, so too did his power and authority in the kingdom. Victoria's journals at this time; she continued to continue to write journals are full of gratitude, full of her gratitude to be a wife and to have uh, and to be a mother, um, to have someone who loved her, and to have someone who actually came along and helped her lift the heavy burden of state that had been laid on her. She struggled with um, she struggled with motherhood. Um, she had never learned the skill, having grown up in such a difficult home. Um, and she and Albert, you know, she and Albert fought a lot over how, you know, the bet had the best way to rear their children, particularly their first daughter, who was also named Victoria, but though called Vicky throughout by her close relations the rest of her life. Um, she, well, we're going to come back to that one. Uh, there's interesting thing there. Um, an interesting point at this time was, remember, uh, Victoria and Albert were they, were, they were loving and faithful to one another in an age, and particularly an age in nobility that was very, it was very, very immoral. And this, this struck very close to them in many ways. Albert's older brother Ernst was, uh, was looking to marry as well, um, but the man was frankly an embarrassment every time he came, uh, he came into England. He was, he was a womanizer. He was, uh, he was riddled with disease because of his unhealthy, because of his immoral habits. And in 1841, so just a few years after Albert's own marriage, he would write to Ernst from Windsor Castle uh, and say, I am deeply distressed and grieved by the news of your severe illness. I have to infer that it is a new outbreak of the same disease which you had here uh, at the time of Albert's wedding. If I should be wrong, I should thank God, but I think I'd be right. But should I be right, I must advise you as a loving brother to give up all ideas of marriage for the next two years, and to work earnestly for the restoration and consolidation of your health. To marry would be as immoral as dangerous for you. If the worst should happen, you would deprive your wife of her health and honor. And should you have a family, you should give your children a life full of suffering, and your country a sick heir. At best, your wife could not respect you, and her love would thus not have any value for you. Should you not have the strength to make her contented in married life, which demands its sacrifices, this would lead to domestic discord and unhappiness. For God's sake, do not trifle with matters which are so sacred. Um, there's a lot there. Albert was, Albert was always full and preoccupied with uh, responsibility and for sacrifice for others. During the, co- uh, during the course, as he grew in political power, he, was, he became, many commentators at the time, both for and against him, common that he was king of England in all but name. The era that that he and his wife lived in has come to be known as Victorian era for good reasons, but it could almost have equally been called the Albertian era for the influence he had on it. He was extremely involved in the British anti-slavery movement of the time and stamping out slavery both within the nation and throughout the empire, which rose to its highest extent uh, during the the later reign of his wife. He sought to improve working conditions and... um, and improve and raise wages for workers throughout the nation. Like Victoria, he was very interested to be, to know his people and to be among them. He promoted free trade throughout the empire, which led to ex- explosion of prosperity uh, for the British at this time. He was uh, advocate ap- education and the application of science to manufacturing and to industry. So all of that study and education that he'd done, uh, he got to bring it, he got to bring it to bear he was uh, heavily involved in the he was heavily involved in the um, in the plan, in the planning and organization of the great exhibition that happened during uh, his his reign with victoria when the whole world brought their brought examples of their cultures and their industries into britain and kicked it off in a kicked it off in a, uh, in the uh, crystal the crystal palace yeah um, so it was, and this was all during a time when kings and queens were falling from power all throughout Europe, um, particularly around the eight, from the late 1840s to the 1850s. There were revolutions throughout Europe. I mean, even our own war between the states was happening. happened during the Victorian era in the 1860s. Um, there were a few. There were a few up. There were a few demonstrations in London. Uh, Victoria and Albert were actually shot at twice. Uh, Victoria never. No matter what happened, Victoria never wanted a covered carriage. She always wanted to be seen uh, whenever she went out. Um, so in, t- in two cases, um, lone gunmen tried to take a shot at the queen um, tried to take a shot at the queen, but she never changed that For all that though, the two of them basically rode out the storm and England and so that by the end of that, England was a position to, um, to grow, g- grow and extend her empire even further and a lot of this was to Albert. Albert's credit, and on, but unfortunately on the 14th of December 1861 uh, he passed away. The cause of death, um, it's in, uh, Albert's health conditions are interesting to consider. The symptoms and the description, and description by himself and by doctors of his painful symptoms indicate that he died from typhoid fever like other members of the family and like many others. However, um, Victoria had actually had typhoid as a girl and survived. So when, uh, so when it looked like that's what Albert had, she presumed he would Beat very poorly and then recover. Um, so we suspect that Albert probably had some comorbidities with this um, that led that led to him uh, led his immune system to, be able to fight off the fever. Um, historians and doctors today have speculated that uh, kidney failure, stomach cancer, or possibly even Crohn's disease may have contributed to his death. Um, following his death, the New York Times, of all things, wrote about him, saying Prince Albert was a Christian and a gentleman as well as a prince. He was more illustrious by his virtues than by his position. For 21 years, he was in the eye of the English nation. And in every respect, he sustained himself as few men in his situation have ever done. We can give but the dry record of his life. And so he left Victoria. So 21 years doesn't sound too bad, but it was actually just a small, really just a small portion of Victoria's life. She would go on to rule by herself for another forty, uh, nearly 40 years. She had a hard time doing that. Um, She fell into deep, deep mourning when her beloved husband passed. Um, She wore black to the end of her, for the rest of her life. Um, She had his room in Windsor and Larry Buckingham Palace uh, restored and kept exactly as it had been, and she made an idol of her dead husband for several years until finally what, until finally what he would have said to her came to her mind, and she realized she she still had responsibilities to her people, to the nation, to the growing empire uh, to reign again, which she did. Um, it's, and uh, there's, it's difficult to read, so I've I'm, I'm been, so for the first time I have to not, I'm not going to recommend the book that I was, that I was working through on this. Uh, this is a book called We Too by historian Jillian Gill. She's an excellent historian and she's a total feminist. So she did not understand, she did not understand this, the power and the comfort that their happy marriage uh, gave to the two of them. She continually, try, she like many historians, tries to, um, Tries to see resentment in Victoria at her husband's at her husband's growing influence and his abilities, and tried to show that he uh, that he crowded her out of the throne during his time. Um, there is no indication of this in Victoria's writings. She uh, it was it was it was a partnership, and what's more, it was a marriage, and she was proud of the, to see her husband to grow and in influence and to see his abilities praised and made useful, and it was. Uh, it was a difficult place for a man to lead, for a woman to follow, and they both and they both did it. And at the end of her, and at the end of, uh, following Albert's death, Victoria wrote to her uncle, to King Leopold, who'd been such a, a help and encouragement to both of them. And... She wrote to him and said, I am also anxious to repeat one thing. And that one is my firm resolve, my irrevocable decision, regarding his, that his wishes, his plans, above everything, his views, about everything, are to be my law. No human power will make me swerve from what he decided. I am also determined that no one person, may he be, be ever so good and ever so devoted among my servants, is to lead or guide or dictate to me. And she, was, and she stuck to that for the rest of her life, reigning as she thought the two of them would have done, uh, had, he, had the Lord left him with her. And she actually avoided, she, she drew away from the court and from the nobility during this time because she didn't want any other attachments. Her, her closest friendships were with, uh, with commoners um, between now and the, between Albert's death and the rest of her life, life, and those were her confidants, again, showing her love for the British people. Um, Billy Graham actually wrote about her, uh, a, a, sl- a portion from her biography, and tells this heartwarming story. She, she was visiting the slums of London and she visited the home of an elderly lady. And after visiting for a few minutes, she rose to leave and asked, is there anything I can do for you? Uh, speaking to her humble, or, uh, her humble subject. And the woman said, yes, ma'am, your majesty, you can meet me in heaven. And the queen turned to her and said softly, yes, I'll be there, but only because of the blood that was shed on the cross for you and for me. And uh, so it, she showed where her, you know, her ultimate faith and hope was. And, just and it was in the same places for any of us. I have one other passage I was going to read here. Ugh. Too many tabs in this book. Let's see, any questions or any comments from anybody uh, before I wrap up here? You were gonna tell a story about Vicky? Yes, thank you, I was. So Vicky was the, was Victoria and Albert's eldest daughter. And um, they, they wanted to do for her much like what their mentors had done for them, and raise her for tradition of prominence. And they actually had an eye, and as, Ger- as Albert had come from Germany to England, they actually had an eye to send, uh, to send a princess back to Germany. They were so. Remember the time frame we're looking at. We're we're in the mid 1800s, mid to late 1800s right now. Germany, throughout her history, had been a had been a decentralized collection of uh, sovereign states, uh, not unlike the United States, but without the United part. They were very much not. Yeah, just like America, just completely unlike America. Uh, they were beginning. They were. There was a movement towards unification. Uh, unification happened. Uh, I I'm, I'm oversimplifying it's a very complicated period of politics here, uh, but generally speaking, there was a period of, of unification and coming together among the German states that was happening at this time. And Victoria and Albert were concerned about it, because it was not coming under, it was not coming under a broad, liberty-minded republicanism, but under an autocratic dictatorship they were seeing. And they were concerned, and Germany was growing in power and influence as well, and they were concerned for the future. Uh, as as we looking back knows they absolutely should have been, so they they were um, so they had an eye for their daughter Victoria for the court of uh, for the court of uh, of the future King Frederick III. and so they were preparing Victoria for this. They oversaw uh, so they oversaw her education very very closely, and this is and this is probably the part of the study that I've wrestled str- wrestled and struggled with the most. It's just trying to figure out how they you know. What happened with their children? Uh, Because their their children went on to marry into a lot of the great houses of Europe, and they spread. You know, uh, they basically, you know, basically everyone in Europe became cousins after Victoria and Albert because their children married so broadly, had so many children, intermarried amongst each other. Um, The the, every indication we have is that uh, Victoria and Albert both they alternated between. Uh, they alternate between being doting parents and being over and being extremely strict parents. We have inf- evidence about discipline as well as true affection. And what seems very, very clear is that, particularly their that their mother and particularly their you know their strong-willed father loom large in the lives of all their children afterwards. Um, one of, so, so uh, Vicky with her Vicky with her you know her her sense of constitutional liberty from the from the Britain uh, married Frederick III in Germany. Uh, they both worked to try to, um, to try to affect the course that the nation was taking at the time. Unfortunately, as uh, just as Albert, her father, was resented in England, she was resented in Germany for being too British. And Frederick was ultimately turned out to be of poor health and died and died soon after his ascension. At that point, their son became king of Germany and well, and actually emperor of the German Empire at the time. And his name was Wilhelm II which should be, which a name should be, sound ominous and familiar. Wilhelm, Wilhelm is an interesting man to study because he, he struggled with an inferiority complex with his, grand, with his grandfather, thinking of his grandfather Albert and thinking of his country of England. He wanted Germany to be, to rise in power, to face, uh, to be like England. Um, and part of it, and a lot of it is that um, a lot of Victor and Albert's children kind of collapsed under the high standards that their parents set. Uh, Albert in particular was a perfectionist. He demanded demanded perfection and excellence of himself and he expected his children to do do the same. And they struggled to meet his standards and he grew exasperated when they would. And some of that came through to his daughter. Um, Wilhelm Wilhelm had a very complicated pregnancy and difficult delivery. He actually was deprived of oxygen for a significant period of time, which many historians have begun to wonder if that led to a that led to some mental illness that he struggled with later. But he definitely had an inferiority complex. He had his, one of his arms was shorter than the other. He had a birth defect that his parents labored to try to correct the rest of his lives. And his mother ended up resenting him for it, for this defect. And so a lot of the care and love that had been poured into her, she withheld from her son, who would later go on to have a prominent place in Europe. Uh, At the end of it, and this was also the time when Otto von Bismarck had, uh, had risen as the premier of Germany at the time. and He was very much in the camp of making Germany a military power in the nations at this time. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to read about, read the section of Ephesians 5, because it speaks to Victoria and Albert's great struggles in their marriage, but it also speaks to me as a father, to all of us, you know, to many of us here as, you know, as fathers and mothers, whether to our own children, whether to children in the church, where the others we have influence over, and that is to be, we have to be, we have to be loving in both discipline and and affection both, because both are desperately needed. And I think we could, and I think uh, if we had more time, we could have a very fruitful study looking at Victoria and Albert's nine children and seeing how these two things, uh, you know, promoted their prosperity and how they also fell short as well, and that had world-shaping impact. Um, so, as usual, I'm afraid I've got to leave you, kind of got to leave you hanging and, and encourage you to go do some more reading on your own. Uh, one other story, though. Towards the end of, um, during Victoria's later reign, following Albert's death, uh, the British Empire, the British Empire spread into India. And, um, and, <laughs> that's a complica- that's another complicated period of history. But one of, uh, one of, one of, but Victoria was very, very proud to be, to be, when she was crowned Empress of India. And she was at, later in the life her chaplain, she asked her chaplain a question about the second coming, and he gave a response, and then he asked her why, and she replied, I wish, I, I wish Jesus would come while I am alive, for nothing would give me more pleasure than with my own hands to give him the crown of Great Britain and India. <laughs> um, I wish, you know, I wish the Lord would give us rulers like that again, whose greatest hope would be for the Lord Jesus to return in their time so they could lay the, lay the power of their respective nations at his feet. Um, it's, a glory, it's a glorious testimony after a long, long reign. Any other questions? Yeah, Bob. This may be incidental, but I'm not sure it does. It is, um, they had nine children. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they only had 20 years, so there's your upper limit. Uh, but no, it was within about uh, 10, to 12, 10 to 11 years, I think. It was pretty quick. My, my point the question is she was not only she was pregnant. Yeah. More than A lot. Time, yep, she yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> she was. Well, I liked what i read once she, uh there, her her supporters said she was five one her detractors would say she was under you know she was just just south of five feet so <laughs> yeah somewhere in that neighborhood she did the job. yep. Mm -hmm. that That is a good question i think in uh, i think in practice by this point the monarch was like you say nominally the head of the church but you know her influence over the church had been even less than of the state at this point she still had a lot of influence over the course of the state not to my knowledge not a lot over the church uh at that point Oh, hey, babe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I think it's also interesting to note that she was the carrier of and which inherited two several of her children and then to their children, and that also led to many of the downfalls because of producing weak heirs. Yeah. So I think mean, she was the head. Kind of, uh, you know, uh, you and I were talking about Victoria and Albert a little bit before this, and the thing that strikes me is they were in a position of prominence and they brought tremendous blessing both to England and to many parts of the world, uh, particularly, in the abo- and particularly in completing the abolition of slavery in, in, a, in any place where they had influence. But you also see they brought judgment to Europe, which was prepared for it at this time as well. Um, they were blessed with children, but those children did not always go on to bless the nations that they were in. And I think you see, you know, you see the fruits of a lot of uh, you see the fruits of that in some of the hemophilia, which contributed, to the, that contributed a lot to the revolutionary spirit and the, the fragility of the monarchies throughout Europe at the time. So it's interesting, we see the Lord's hand both blessing and humbling. The two of them, their children, and then the nations that they had influence of at this time. All right, well, unless there's anything else, let's, uh, let's pray and prepare to go to worship. Lord God, we thank you for your servants, uh, for Queen Victoria, uh, for King Albert. We thank you for we thank you for their faithfulness and for their fidelity to each other and to the responsibilities you gave them. Lord God, we tremble as we see their sins, their failings, particularly in their exasperation, and their uh, and the the high stand for their exasperation with their children, uh, and, and even with each other on occasion. Lord God, we pray that you would pray, Lord, you would teach us through this. Pray that you would give us their sense of duty and responsibility and concern for others. And pray at the same time you would keep us mindful and humble before you and under your hand of correction. Lord, surround us with those who will encourage us uh, when we're downcast and discouraged, or rebuke us when we sin. Lord, let us, be those, let us be those men and women. Let us seek out that the company of your people, I pray. Heavenly Father, uh, grant, Lord, grant us, uh, grant, grant us rulers like Queen Victoria. Uh, again, who will desire, will desire to do all they do for your glory and for the reign of the King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, to, Lord, to whose rule we gladly submit this morning and make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.